I'm Hannah Young, and you're listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Isnick, sponsored by Philanthropic Impact. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are in the world, welcome back to The Caring Economy with me, Toby Usnick. Today I have as my guest, Penny Abiwardina. She, is, she was New York City's Commissioner for International Affairs during the de Blasio administration, where she headed up the Mayor's Office for International Affairs and led the city's global platform for promoting its goals for more just and accessible society, showcasing the fantastic diversity of New Yorkers and sharing the policies and practices to cities and states all around the world. I can't think of a more exciting person to have on my show because I'm such an internationalist myself. So welcome to The Caring Economy, Penny. Thank you so much, Toby. I'm so excited to be with you, especially um, during this crazy time and Women's Month um, in March 2022, if we can believe it. Yes, and and Ukraine and everything else, but you know, the the city never sleeps, keeps on chucking. Especially after the last two years, right? We have gone through a lot. Um, and to say that the sitting city is thriving is an absolute blessing. Yeah, and thank you for your leadership in that because to think how far we've come, you know, it seems like a marathon, and yet we've accomplished a lot yeah. as citizens and as leaders, I think, in just two years. So, and we'll talk about that a bit today. Uh, but first, Penny, we usually ask our guests to talk, tell us a little bit about their life journey, how they got where they got, sort of, you know where you're born, how you were mentored, where maybe where you went to school, but what was your calling? How did you figure it out? Were there some pivots along the way? And, um, you know, don't be afraid to share some of the, the challenging things as well. There were a lot of pivots. So I was actually born in Sri Lanka, in Colombo. And um, my parents drove during the Civil War back in the early 80s. And I actually came uh, to the U.S., to Southern California when I was four. Um, we actually overseed a visa and I was undocumented into until my early years. Um, I like to say I am here and had the role as New York City's diplomat um, and global ambassador, uh, thanks to Ronald Reagan. Um, it was his blanket amnesty back in um, the mid 80s that allowed me a path to citizenship. And so um, that, that really set my early days. And of course, you know, speaking about Sri Lanka's civil war, that was something learning about what was happening in the militarization of women that helped to a certain extent politicized me when I was in college, learning about the conflict, um, the situation of women. I'm also a survivor of violence, and my my father is um, mentally ill, so both with tensions and challenges both at home, but then in the global, um, connecting back to my home country perspective, um, if I want to say I had any real path, it was just trying to figure out how to address um, empowerment and enablement issues for girls and women around the world. Mm-hmm. So that's that one um, core narrative that I've always had in everything that I've done. And, you know, I was just recently the commissioner for international affairs for the city of eight years. But that core mission around enabling and empowering women um, was consistent even in that work. And we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the pivots, I want to say, you know, depending on who your like listeners are too, um, I think part of being successful in different periods of your career is being opportunistic. Um, I remember, you know, in my early mid twenties, I just really wanted to be um, on the program teams of the big Human Rights Watch Amnesty. Um, unfortunately, those are the sexiest jobs. Yeah. And if I wanted to work for these institutions, I had to be more strategic about how I get it. And so I started actually as a fundraiser in development. And because I know 
how to speak well, I know how to sell issues. It became an incredibly important period in which I got myself into the institutions that I cared about, continued to do the work that I wanted to, also sharpening my skills both on the policy end, um, but also on how to convince and to listen to and engage with others on the issues that I care about. And I just really just wanted to emphasize that bit because as we all know, we don't all get to just land in our dream job, right? right? Sure. I've had a couple of dream jobs, um, <laughs> but we, I had to be opportunistic. I went from doing that kind of fundraising work to getting sort of the big moment um, that allowed me a platform was at the Clinton Global Initiative. I don't know if your listeners remember, but it was a conference in which President Clinton brought together corporations, philanthropists, government, civil society. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it was about making a commitment to action. So I got to work with the companies and government and I built out their girls and women's program. And that was just a really exciting you know, moment in my career in terms of how to be entrepreneurial inside company and how you can ensure that you can drive your agenda, but how you bring everybody else along. And for me, it was always about gender, integrating gender into everything mm -hmm. we did. Um, and so that was, that was the first pivot into working with companies and governments diplomatic to a certain extent to ensure I could drive our girls and women's agenda. And then of course had the pleasure of being appointed by Mayor de Blasio. Well, I, I definitely want to talk a little bit about CGI and about the, um, where the rubber meets the road. I mean, it's really exciting what the Clintons and CGI did with getting those commitments and mm -hmm. actually uh, taking action. But before that, I wonder, you talked about Sri Lanka and growing up in a civil war. How has that informed your life experience? That's quite traumatizing, I would imagine. Well, you know, I was very lucky because we were able to leave when I was four. So I didn't have to live in it. I had to live with the reality that my immediate family, my grandfather, aunts, uncles, cousins, they were back home in this scenario. Like I said, the local and the globe, not the, the local in the sense of like, I grew up with a father who was mentally ill and had, you know, domestic violence as a defining feature, I hate to say it, of my childhood experience, but at the same time, understanding this next level of, you know, tension and violence and war back in what we call back home. Mm -hmm. And that just made me that solidified my desire in no matter what I did and how I did it, it would always end in, in advocating for women and girls. And so I, and I think part of the reason that's important, and I would, I always, when I have, um, when I talk to people younger, you know, a lot of things we're going to have to do to make money, the reality of just like how we navigate our careers. But if you can find a way to be consistent in the values that you care about. So yes. if you can't, for example, work in the space, I always cared about girls and women. If I couldn't find a job in that moment that advocated for those issues, then I made sure I volunteered my time to do that. Mm -hmm. Because for me, that purpose is always driven by ensuring that I'm working for the values that I care about. And mm -hmm. so that I just has been like a defining narrative in I would mm -hmm. say the last 20 years of my of my professional yeah. experience. I love that advice. I, I give similar advice to people. I, I think purpose is everything. Higher purpose, I would say. I mean, certainly advocating for yeah. women and girls is a higher purpose. It needs to be bigger than oneself. It needs to have a universal. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, mm -hmm. making money is not high enough, right? That's, uh, it's important, but. Well, but it's an important reality, right? I mean, that's where, because I mean, I grew up poor. And so there are just certain jobs. It's really difficult to work in nonprofit scenarios. You know, we had to, in the city, we had to make a very specific distinction at some point where we stopped hiring interns for free. Like you can't, you, you, you suddenly take out 
half the population of, you know, viable, yeah. excellent candidates if you can't pay. And then when people move into institutions, whether it's dance and arts, et cetera, you can still drive your agenda within it. So mm -hmm. having those values and being in all of these different sectors too allows you to also push the, push mm -hmm. the norms um, in whichever sector you're in. Yeah, agreed. I, want, I don't want to be, you know, Dr. Phil in a self-help session here, but you talked openly about uh, growing up in an abusive situation. Is there any sort of quick lessons learned or advice or resources you suggest to people who might be dealing with such matters? And one thing I will say about that domestic violence, and I think um, many survivors or anyone that's experiencing it right now know, depending on your cultural reality, things are a little bit different. So I, for a long time, was on the board and volunteered with Saki for South Asian Women. My mom experienced domestic violence, I, I did, um, in a very distinct way. My father was able to take her passport. There are just a lot of, and then there's always language issues, et cetera. And I think that if anybody is experiencing it or wants to help others that they see, it's also important to understand the cultural context yep. in which it's happening. And we're lucky to say, you know, in the U.S., there's lots of organizations that take that into account and are able to help from a real core how to make the individual feel safe about navigating that. The other is, is that I spent many years feeling really thought, sorry for myself for being a victim. And the shift that really was powerful for me was recognizing my power, having had that lived experience, how I was going to do it different kind of change I could make understanding what it meant to be a survivor is quite incredible to own that power of it. I have to do experience that you have to do it at some point you might feel to help others. So I'm glad to hear that. What do you think, Penny, about the state of women and girls? Where are we? We're in a very you know challenging situation. 64 million uh, women and girls live in a humanitarian context. And I think in the last couple of days, we're in early March, a million refugees coming out of the Ukrainian crisis. It is not looking good for the Center for Reproductive. Um, we are preparing for, you know, the Supreme Court return, Roe versus Wade. I mean, there are a lot of cases we have taken both globally and domestically. But at the same time, of course, you know, things have, have improved. And I think that is part of why you have to juggle both those realities of mm. how hard the movement has been hit. But also embrace, and part of that is, you know, when I was commissioner, mostly with the UN missions, but the sustainable development goals, all of which are to the way that, you know, women treated, whether it's in the climate, whether it's in, you know, relation to quality and uh, fair access to education. These are the... Um, you know, I, I, I like that duality, the way you present it. I, one of the ways I try and deal with that in, in social justice for me and my history, particularly around LGBTQ, is vigilance. We have to stay mm -hmm. vigilant because just when you think you may have finally gotten yeah. married equality or took yeah. one step forward, it's two steps back. Here we are to think that the Supreme Court could take away, take away Roe v. Wade. Unbelievable. Yeah. All these years later, yeah. it's just, we have to stay vigilant. And we also, as you do, and as you've said you do, we have to take others along with us, right? Like you need That's your right. allies, you need to say thank you, you need to inspire them and have them be there with you as you are there for them. So I wonder when we go back to your time in, in City Hall, how did you go about doing that with the international diplomatic community? How did you get people sort of coming together in, a, in what strikes me at the British Consulate is a sometimes fractured uh, diplomatic core. We don't seem to always mm -hmm. optimize our totality. So I wonder how do you, you seem to have done an effective job of trying to take stock, quantify, challenge, mm -hmm. inspire. 
the diplomatic community in New York. Yeah, and you know, when I when I first um, came into office, it was during the UN General Assembly of 2014. You're talking about the disconnect between the diplomats. I mean, the the, dip, the, the disconnect between the diplomatic corps, um, the largest in the world, and New Yorkers was extraordinary. Yes. Um, and you know, I important to restructure the agency that would be focused on bringing value to both. When I look at that period, what we did was build, for example, um, for the concert corps, create a program called Connecting Local to Global. And that was helping me host events, whether it's at cultural institutions or at town halls, but for the diplomatic corps at the consular level to understand what services New York City had for your communities, your diaspora here in New York City, right? And that was just by respecting the important bridge that you are to our community. And so by going back to that foundational connectivity, we were able to create like a very resource-based functional. And I will say by the time fast forward seven years, the concert core was some of, was one of our most important avenues into our community. These are all the resources cities creating, but our hospitals are overwhelmed. Please stay at home unless, you know, those, that was a messaging back in March, April 2020, unless you feel like you are, you know, deathly ill. Mm-hmm. But it was that kind of reputation and trust that we had were able to pivot to when COVID had happened. Created that program back in 2015. And then on the other side, we created the same year, the Junior Ambassador Program. So we had an umbrella, you know, program, Global Vision, looked at what the sustainable development were doing. We identified synergies with our plans for New York City and then create avenue for young people to the UN. My favorite program um, is our junior ambassador program. And within that program is that focus on SDG for life underwater. Um, when they learned about it, our, we had um, dozens of kids in the South Bronx. They, their commitment through the junior ambassador program was to help clean up the South Bronx River, which is one of our filthiest waterways. Like, how absolutely powerful is that for them to learn about what's happening in the Maldives, you know, all the climate change that's related to our oceans, and then connect it to what's happening in their community. Now, these kids are going home and talking to their parents and their neighbors and their friends at school about it, but that's how we built this connectivity between, you know, our five boroughs and the UN and the diplomatic community. I mentioned earlier the concert corps, but that is the way that I feel like anybody that takes on government, your responsibility to, is to understand the needs of your constituents. Mine were particularly unique because they're the New Yorkers that pay my salary, the taxpayers that pay my salary, but then also New York City hosts the largest diplomatic corps. And as you know, you are a varied group. The UNEU, the 183 permanent missions, the UN affiliates, the 116 consulates, the 100 you know, economic trade commissioners. And how do you bring those together in a collaborative way? And that we did that through very programming, which I want to just say fast forward to into the Trump administration. When we had our federal government abdicating its responsibility on, let's take an example, climate change, mm. we knew out from the beginning that he was serious about pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. When he did, we signed an executive order within 24 hours that committed New York City directly to it. Worked with the U.S. Conference of Mayors, over 300 U.S. cities that are party to it. I mean, obviously Biden re-signed us into it. But those were four years in which if anybody asked the U.S. Secretary General, but what about the Trump administration? He would pivot into, but look at all the local governments. And so to me... um, that's how we brought together the community. It was really very much about how do you serve, serve the diplomatic corps as equally as possible. I'm not here for favorites or you're bigger than the other. I had the same amount of time 
with the UK ambassador and consul general as I did with the Marshall Islands ambassador because that that is that is what matters. These are where our issues are going to be we're going to be able to to share. Ladies and gentlemen, again today on the caring economy, we're lucky to have Penny Abiwardina as our guest. She is the past New York City Commissioner for International Affairs. Penny, before you uh, joined City Hall, you were working with Clinton Global Initiative, as I recall. Here, you seem to be in this uniquely wonderful position to have straddled both private sector, public sector, government. How do you get them all to hum together? Like you talked a little bit earlier about you know, the commitment you got from private sector, from corporations and donors. How did you do that? You know, it's about listening, right? That's, I think, the, the diplomat core strategy and figuring out how to bring whichever entity you're working with to the table in a way that benefits both sides. And that's something that I learned really early on in the work that I did at the Clinton Global Initiative, especially on the girls and women's issue. In the beginning, when I created that program back in 2009-2010, everybody was so excited about girls and women, but if somebody joined Goldman, Exxon, if they talked about women's economic empowerment, go talk to Penny. Girls' education, go talk to Penny. And the problem that we all have when we think about issues is that we silo. And mm-hmm. I think the most important thing when you think about complex issues is how do you integrate into strategies that are holistic? So I'm giving a very specific gender example. Sure. When you talk to companies, you need to talk about the impact of domestic violence on their global supply chain. They don't need to care about the women, but they need to care about their workers. And there are just very practical ways in which there is such important work that activists are doing around the world. But I'm just saying at different levels, you just need to know how to grab them and bring them into the table just mm-hmm to have the conversation, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, I currently sit on the board of the Center for Reproductive Rights and, mm-hmm. you know, everybody thinks we're just about abortion. We absolutely are focused on the right of women to have abortion, but you have to think about women's health, its intersectionality to so many other issues, including LGBT, including trans, including, you know, my identity as a woman of color. If you can communicate that, it allows a lot of openness for people to start to enter the conversation because mm-hmm. nobody's ever going to be at the same place. I mean, socioeconomic divide is another big factor there, right? Education, exactly. all these different mm-hmm. things. And that intersectionality kind of, it's what we were talking about earlier with allies. If you start to think about all the different overlapping circles, then you can find others who might actually advocate for you. I wonder if you have any views right now with Ukraine and, and the global response to it. I mean, not just women and girls, but refugees or just everything. It's such a sad moment. It's an extremely sad moment. So many conflicts that hurt our heart. It's just extremely sad. And um, the UN, UNICEF, UNHCR have all pivoted into supporting them has been extraordinary as well as the global community. Mm-hmm. I will say, you know, there is something very, just something that's giving me a pause is the way that the coverage of this and the way that we are being, we are processing this information um, Mm -hmm. that is not equivalent to what has happened in Syria, for example, or Yemen, or in the Eastern Congo. You know, something that I get very triggered by is when people keep, this is the biggest conflict that's happened in 80 years. In Europe, sure, but it is absolutely, absolutely not the biggest conflict that has happened in the last 80 years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as a woman of color that um, does the work that I have done, I think we have to all be very careful about seeing certain scenarios within this context and bubble of they look like not even doesn't have to be skin color and eye color, but they are middle class or wealthy. Like you look at Ukrainian streets and they look like streets, you know, and I think that is, we're in a very, I don't want to say dangerous, but we have, this is a conversation we need to have and it needs to be 
um, something we need to be honest with ourselves. We can absolutely be horrified and saddened by what's happening in Ukraine, but to ignore the larger context of what's happening in the world, I think is equally dangerous. I agree. The other thing that's interesting about that, I think, is that, um, you know, I liken it to the Vietnam War when we were told that was America's living room war, where television brought into our living room. This is our first web war where the web is bringing it to our phones, to our TVs from the sources themselves. It may be filtered, it may be authentic or not, but it's fascinating how much content is coming out now. And it's not just through three broadcast networks. That makes it even more inspiring and scary at the same time. Inspiring because Putin can't stop that story from getting out, but scary also because people can manipulate. And to your point, as I understand, also there are other parts of the world that don't get the same kind of attention because maybe they don't have the technology, the the web access, what have you, to you know focus on the genocide. Some of it is the tech access. I think some of it is also just like the fund of coverage, how journalists um, from the West understand what they're covering and what they say. I think some of your listeners have probably seen on Twitter some of the extremely racist commentary from mainstream journalists about why this this crisis is more important or more devastating than others. others. And- so I want to go back a little bit to women and girls. And uh, more specifically, you've spent time with the 92nd Street Y and its Innovation Advisory mm-hmm. Committee. Um, I grew up, my brothers and I grew up going to the Y and the Y was just absolutely instrumental to our first everything. The Y is such an exceptional institution. Uh, Going back to sort of children, uh, the 92nd Street Y, which is a phenomenal institution here in New York, you've been on its innovation advisory committee. And I just think it's truly democratic and embodies the best of America. And I wonder if you share that sentiment or what your thoughts are on the Y the Y system writ large, or just the 92nd Street Y? It has been an absolute privilege. Um, I've been on the board, the innovation board for six or seven years ago, six or seven years now. Um, I don't know if you know this, but 92Y um, invented Giving Tuesday. Yes, <laughs> I know Henry too. Which still like blows my mind. Yes. Um, you know, part of the, the Y family and the 92Y is always thinking about how to give to others. And I just love the innovation that came from the Cyber Monday mm-hmm. to a Giving Tuesday. But yeah. how do you always switch those, you know, foundational? Right now, we're focused on mental health and loneliness. And this is obviously coming from, you know, we're about to hit the two-year anniversary of COVID here in New York City. Um, but it is, the reason I'm involved is that it is consistent with all the values that I care about and allows me to volunteer my time and support, um, you know, just a genuinely phenomenal institution. I have to say that is um, consistent with how I spend all my time. That is (laughs) hopefully including working soon too. Well, I've done some work with the fantastic Henry Timms, who was running the Y all those years and now is at uh, Center. And one of those early co-founders of Giving Tuesday, I share your enthusiasm. I know that you've had a great run with the city government, and I think you deserve a little bit of a break, but but what's next? What are you thinking about? I definitely want to continue the work that I've been doing in um, international development, humanitarian work. Um, I, I see myself as an entrepreneur and a disruptor, um, and I would like to take that, um, that experience that I've garnered over the last 20, 25 years, and there's a lot of um, disruption that is needed. When I look at, you know, the international NGO development scene, some of it is still so fundamentally um, driven by neo-colonial 
mm-hmm. sort of thought in terms of how you work within communities, how you work um, within developing countries. And that is something that I'd like to continue to, um, to be part of the solutions and, and work for. Um, but right now, I'm just like a mom. It's weird. I haven't, I've worked like my entire life and I've just taken the last two months off and I have to say it is a privilege of a lifetime and I'm taking advantage of it because, um, you know, just the ability to reconnect with myself and re-energize myself um, because there's so much work that needs to be done and hopefully I'll get a job soon. (laughs) But if one of our listeners wants to uh, find you because they think they need you on their team, um, what's the best way to find you? I think uh, there's, I'm on LinkedIn, on Twitter. Um, I, I, I don't shorten or do anything with my last name. So if you just type in Abby Gordina, you will find me on LinkedIn, Instagram. Feel free to, uh, to DM me. That would be, uh, that would be great. I'm, I am open to um, having these conversations now. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, here it is Women's History Month here in New York and just the beginning of it. We've had a great guest who's a, a fantastic female leader in New York with us today. I want to thank Penny Abby Wardina, who is the past New York City Commissioner for International Affairs. So, uh, Penny, I'm going to let you have the last word. Um, any words of wisdom or thoughts of inspiration for our listeners? Well, I love the name of your podcast, The Caring Economy. And I would say that after the last two years, and we're not at the end of this, unfortunately, of this COVID reality, I would say take care of yourself, whether it is a daily walk, whatever it is, uh, finding time to care for yourself is going to end up. Um, improving everybody's life around you, I think, and your ability to participate in the caring economy. So thank you so much. And Penny, have a great Women's History Month, a great International thank Women's you. Day. And please come back on the caring economy. Ladies and gentlemen, again, today we've been thrilling. We've had a lovely time having Penny Abiwardina on. Thank you for listening to The Caring Economy with Toby Usnick. Please share your comments and questions with Toby via Twitter at T Usnick or LinkedIn at Toby Usnick. And thank you for sharing the caring economy with your friends and colleagues.